Okay, thank you for joining us today. I'm Mark Winthorpe. I'm a partner at Panoni Corporate, and I specialize in sort of venture capital and private equity transactions. Hi, my name is Ashnora Mershi, and I'm an associate partner in the corporate team at Panoni. So today we're going to be looking at the position adopted by the British Venture Capital Association in their model documents, particularly in connection with Series A funding rounds and some key points to note. So the term venture capital is thrown out there quite a lot, so it's quite a distinguishable term. So Mark, what's the general structure and what are we referring to when we mention venture capital in UK markets? Yeah, so I think venture capital is quite a broadly used term and probably a broadly used term around the world. So probably just stepping back and thinking, okay, what, how does it apply to the UK market? I think the first thing I'd probably say about venture capital is a really growing area um, in the UK. And I think in this calendar year alone, I think there's been £15 billion of investment in venture capital wow. early stage startups. So it's a really meaningful sector um, that's sort of growing and probably is very distinguishable from sort of private equity transactions. And it's creating its own sort of subsection, if you like. So it's a, a really growing sector. And I think the UK is the third highest behind China and the US. So we're ahead of Europe in that regard and is reflective of how well um, we're doing um, in the UK. But obviously there's room to grow and what have you. I know there's something specifically around the government at the moment are looking at the pension fund industry and are looking to maybe release that capital, which will give massive firepower. So you're probably adding, you know, 50, 75 billion onto that 15 wow. billion that's been that's this year. Lot. So it could be really transformational. So it's a really relevant sector and something, you know, as a firm we're really interested in working on. Um, I think venture capital is obviously investing in early stage companies. There's probably only one to two percent of most companies that are actually, you know useful so to get venture capital investment in sure. if you like it's really transformational um sort of companies that can transform a sector into something um that can go massively exp exponentially expanding so it's a really really positive sector to be involved in um in terms of the uk there's probably three main areas that we come across that, okay. that the venture capital would be involved in there's sort of venture capital trusts which i'll touch on in a little bit there's then sort of family offices, EIS funds, so sort of high net worth groupings, if you like, that invest in venture capital. And the third limb that we see quite a lot of is sort of corporate venture arms of, of bigger corporates, if you like. So they have their own venture venture team within a bigger corporate. Um, so real real cross section, um, but you know really growing industry. About yourself, Ashley, in yeah, terms so, of your experience. What, yeah, what you so you mentioned there? there venture arms of large corporates, and that's really where I've had you know some good experience. So one of the examples is um, I've acted for a client called Steamaco, we're a market leading technology company who really focus on enabling energy access um, in frontier markets. So a number of years ago, they received um, venture capital funding from Shell Technology Ventures, who are the corporate venture arm of Shell P PLC. Um, since then, over the last few years, they've had various further funding rounds, both from existing investors and, you know, additional Series A, Series B funding rounds as well. So that's really helped them grow as a business over the years and, you know, allowed them to get to the stage that they are today. Um, I know you've had some experience as well yourself, Mark. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think I think my experience is probably more around the sort of more structured sort of venture capital trusts. So venture capital trusts, just to, to have a quick recap, um, are effectively similar to um, investment trusts. Um, they're listed on the UK stock market, but they're quite regulated from the venture capital um, spectrum, if you like. Sure. So a venture capital trust has restrictions on what companies it can invest in, for instance. So 
it's really companies that are less than seven years. In most instances, there's certain extensions for knowledge intensive businesses, but generally less than seven years, less than 250 employees. And also there's caps on quantum of investment that you can have into um, a single company, right. if you like, and also during an app per annum and also on a lifetime basis. So fairly restricted in terms of what they're going for, fairly early stage businesses that again are looking on, you know, looking to grow exponentially um, in terms of that kind of space. Um, in terms of some of the, the the businesses we're lucky to, to work with, you've probably got Maven Capital, you've got YFM, you've got Mercy of Fund Managers, some of the leading um, fund managers that manage those venture capital trusts. So great businesses to work with. A um, couple of recent examples we've worked on. So we worked with Mercy on a $10 million uh, funding round, Series A into Camino Bioscience um, was one example. And another one was BioRelate, where we acted again for the investors. So YFM and Maven put six and a half million uh, into BioRelate, which is a big data business that's aimed at sort of um, research for the pharma industry, right. if you like. So again, all ticking a lot of boxes there in terms of high growth businesses in, in really interesting sectors. And that deal actually recently won the insider deal uh, of the year for the sub 10 million pound deal at the Northwest Insiders. So again, great, great deal for us to be involved in and probably is demonstrative of, of, of the sort of stuff we get involved in. Um, so, so you mentioned there, you know, YFM, Mercy and Maven. I know that um, some of those, you know, organizations do have their own house documents that they work with when they're looking at making investments. But I guess today we're looking at what is the BVCA and what are the BVCA model documents? So the BVCA um, stands for the British Venture Capital Association and the BVCA model documents um, have been prepared by a collection of investors. And they're really um, streamlined and a good starting point for founders who are looking at series A investment or term sheet. Um, so the purpose of today's podcast really is for us to explore what those positions in the documents mean for founders, um, because if you look at them on the face of them, they can appear to be quite heavy documents to somebody who's going in blind. Um, so really, the purpose of today is to drill down into the detail of some of those key provisions in the documents and what they would really mean yeah. for founders. Yeah, Master, I think, it's a, I think it's a toolkit, isn't it, for founders Absolutely. To, to sit back and think, right, okay, they're getting loads of term sheets through actually, what is a good reference point? The BBCA is a, a you know, relatively friendly founder position and a lot of the points is a useful starting point as part of their discussions, their fireside chats with investors. And it's well established, it. isn't it? It's yeah. a, a lot of um, people well-known in the industry who have come together and put their thoughts on paper in terms of preparing that um, more founder-friendly set of documents. Yeah, I think so. And it, it's really just trying to encourage that growth phase in venture capital, which you said at the outset, really, isn't it? You know, those documents hopefully reduce the amount of negotiation in the documents and then can obviously facilitate the money going in quickly, which obviously is important in these businesses. So. Absolutely. So if we look at the first um, point for today's topic, so lever rights, um, the reason that we touch on lever rights today is because they are slightly different on a venture capital deal than they are on a private equity transaction. Um, so here we're talking about a scenario where there is growth capital coming into the business. Everyone's working towards a growth plan. Um, in this instance, the founders aren't necessarily cashing out. So they're not taking money off the table and they're not necessarily getting additional shares for free as you might get sweet equity on a private equity deal. Um, and therefore the documents are less investor friendly and more founder friendly as, as you mentioned just now, Mark. So in the BVCA model articles, they define what is a bad lever and they look at a bad lever and they define it as somebody who 
becomes a leaver by consequence of summary dismissal or voluntary resignation other than constructive dismissal or leaving as a consequence of them breaching their restrictive covenants. Yeah, they're quite, quite extreme scenarios, aren't they? The, Absolutely. The, the so that's your worst case scenario. Yeah. You're a bad leaver in those fixed scenarios. Um, a good lever is then the flip of that. So it's somebody who is not a bad lever. And in terms of how that contrasts to private equity transactions, in a P transaction, you'd usually see, you know, a good lever being defined as somebody who either dies or is permanently incapacitated, wrongfully dismissed, or even is deemed to be a good lever by discretion. Um, and anybody who is a bad lever by consequence of defining what a good lever is, is anybody who sees this to be a lever for another circumstance. So that's quite penal in that sense compared to the BVCA model documents where you are really um, defining those extreme scenarios of what is a bad lever. Yeah, definitely. And it's really important to know really that because you know, some of the some of the PE houses or venture capital uh, houses would actually take the position of a quasi-PE position on, on documentation. Right. So knowing what is the BVCA position is definitely helpful. Um, for advisors. The other point I'd just say on that is in, you know, that is really for founder equity. So that's for founders who bootstrap the business, uh, you know, it's come through from growing it from nothing to where it is now up until the institutional round, where you've got other managers who've come along later on, or you've got managers joining it as part of the, the series A round, they would generally more likely get options, which are exit only. Sure. So actually that is more similar to a private equity position. So this is really protecting the founder equity, those guys whose idea it was and has grown the business. Um, as I said, other managers may be getting more similar lever rights to, to P deals. Yeah, that makes sense, Mark. And I guess aligned to those lever rights is really the vesting provisions. So how does vesting for good levers usually work? Yeah, so, so vesting, I think the starting point is probably something under the BVCA documents is like a four-year period. So we're now thinking around good lever scenarios. So vesting is applicable to good levers um, over a four-year period and probably on a monthly basis. So you're thinking about it as 48 individual um, sections where you accrue uh, rights to keep the shares in right. essence over that period of time. Um, so yeah, four-year period monthly um sort of vesting if you like so the vested shares are the shares that you retain and yeah the, correct yeah, yeah. and yeah. the unvested shares are the ones that if you become a lever a certain percentage may then you know get taken off you or yeah no absolutely so it, it's sort of the vesting on the good lever which you don't get on private equity deals is really reflective of the fact that the good lever is more beneficial and more favorable to founders on venture deals um so as a quid pro quo for that there is this kind of vesting concept that sits with it so, so we've seen in certain situations where certain investors might ask for cliff edge vesting. And in terms of what that would look like, if somebody um, is one year and 11 months into their vesting when they become a good lever, they would look for that to fall back to one year rather than them getting you know, advantage of the fact that they've been there for almost two years. So based on what you're saying, if there are monthly intervals in the BVCA documents, then essentially they would obtain the benefit of staying there for the full one year and 11 months as opposed to cliff edge vesting and losing a yeah, portion of Yeah, that. massively, which could be a big difference in terms of their value for a lever in terms of retaining, you know, a much larger percentage of the shares on that basis. Um, as I said, I think, you know, the BBCA position is on a monthly basis. I think realistically, you do see sort of quarterly vesting sure. as opposed to maybe yearly vesting. So again, it's something to negotiate with a with an incoming investor, but quarterly vesting is probably your fallback if if monthly uh, monthly vesting. Yeah, is so that would rather than looking at forty eight 
pinch points that would look at 16 over the four-year period and then allocate percentage accordingly. Yeah. And when should vesting usually start from? Yeah, so th this this is another really important point. And I think it's probably a sort of a commercial point to, to negotiate with the incoming investor. Sure. I think it really depends on often whether there's been a pre-Series A round. So if there's been a, like a seed funding round, um, EAS round or what have you, you know, pre-Series A, you may already have been introduced or the founders may already have had a, a period of time where they're already vesting in terms of their shares. So they may say being you know, two years into a four-year vesting period. Um, so from the founder's perspective, they're obviously going to want that vesting period that's already started to continue Absolutely. and maybe just run for another two years. An incoming investor and their view on this will definitely be that they want to reset the clock. So they want that four-year period to restart again um, from zero. And I think more often than not, it probably does okay. in our experiences. They would of, lose the two years vesting yeah, that they might already resets have. it. The important thing for managers to think about in that scenario where they are being forced to reset the clock is maybe think actually... The vesting can normally start at 0% up to say 75, 80%. But in a scenario where they've already had a period of vesting, their position should be, right, can we start the vesting on, on day one at 20%, 30%? Actually, that's again, another commercial point. So you can maybe start at 20% and maybe run up to 80% as opposed to zero. So it's definitely something um, to think about. And you mentioned there, let's say going up to 75 or 80% and not 100%. And presumably that's to give some hurt value to founders for when they leave to incentivize them to stay and grow yeah. the business. Yeah, I think I think that's right. You know, good lever scenarios are mostly scenarios outside of the control of the founders anyway. But still, I think you know there are some scenarios where someone could you know, edge out or not necessarily voluntary resign. They, you know, there's other scenarios that they could be good levers. So the investor will always want to make it more beneficial for them to stay until an exit or a further round because actually they're massively reliant on the founders, managers growing the Absolutely. business. The investors don't run the business, it's the managers, which the managers always need to think about. No matter how biased the documents are in favor of the investors, the investors need them to run the business, which is absolutely you know, a cornerstone of of, of venture deals really. And is there another alternative? So let's say somebody did become a lever for any reason. Is there an alternative in terms of, you know, changing the class of shares that they get rather than um, buying those shares back off them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a difference again between venture deals and private equity deals and in our experience. So on venture deals, you tend to find that the vested um, shares held um, under a good lever scenario are just retained. Often they lose their rights. And then the unvested shares for good levers and all of the shares for bad levers will then effectively just be converted into deferred shares. It's a really neat way of doing it. It stops the need to go through a preemptive process, offering all the shares to all the other shareholders. And really what it ensures is all the money that's going into the business is to grow the business as opposed to cashing out levers, um, which can cause difficulty. The other thing, the other thing is some, some certain investors, say venture capital trusts, can't actually pay any money yeah. or cash out. Um, it's good shareholders then. anyway so they can't do it but that allows them to maintain their percentage shareholding so yeah conversion into deferred is, is is the way the bbca precedents work as well so that's really helpful thank you for that mark so i guess the next key point for founders to note are the drag along rights in the articles and um, so the bvca position is that the holders of a majority of the equity shares together with um an investor majority can enforce a drag along under the articles um so the bvca doesn't allow investors to exercise that drag on their own. And that's because most funds don't have a time cap. So they are evergreen. And that's in contrast to a lot of private equity funds. Sometimes, you know, regional development funds such as MPIF, which 
do have um, you know a time, ten year time limit in which they need to get their you know divestment back out. So there might be a drag along right under P transaction documents, which is tied to that same time period yeah. which they need to exit. So you know, in this scenario where we're looking at venture capital deals. Um, they can put a certain amount of money in every single year. There isn't a time limit by which they need to exit. Yeah, definitely. It removes the argument, doesn't it, which PE funds come up with to say, look, their fund is limited on time, so Absolutely. they need a drag to be able to harvest and realise their investment. That that same argument isn't there on venture. No. Uh, capital trust, for instance, which, as you said, isn't it, put money in every year, and it's just based on the net asset value of the business under the, you know, as it goes on each year. It doesn't need to have that end goal. That being said... You know, venture capital uh, investors may have a different view. They may want to realize their money so they can recycle it into another portfolio company, for instance. So it's certainly something to be to be discussed. What's the um, what's the BVCA position on on that? Yeah, so so the BVCA position on that is that you know it's it's usually um, looking at it being um, a combination of both the investors and the majority shareholders. So it's not something that they look to just give the right to solely, you know, the investors to be able to enforce that drag. So that's really beneficial for the founders, slightly softer in terms of the position um, in the founders' favor. And the one point for founders to note in that um, regard is that the drag along provisions will usually be linked back to the proceeds waterfall. So one thing they need to watch out for is if there is an ability for, um, you know, the investors to drag solely, and there is a preference under the waterfall, then it's quite a neat way for investors to be able to, you know, realize their money back out um, in their own time. So they need to make sure that, you know, they're mindful of both the waterfall provisions and the drag along provisions when they're coming to negotiate these types of documents. I mentioned the proceeds waterfall there, Mark, but, you know, we, it'd be useful to understand how that works. And we often see things like, you know, participating preference, liquidation preference, non-participating preference, banded around in venture capital yeah, deals. So yeah, 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 what, yeah. what does that actually yeah, mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's trying, to, it's trying to unpick those, isn't it, in terms of what they actually mean. So, um, And it's really important because it could make a big difference on what a founder manager actually takes out on an exit. You know, they've worked hard to get to an exit, but, you know, the difference between a, a participating and non-participating preference can make a big difference. Non-participating preference is really a downside protection. So that's the investor saying, okay, if we go in at a certain value, and on an exit, the value is less than that. So the business has actually underperformed from the point in time they invest. They get their money back first. Right. And then the balance of the proceeds then gets split amongst the shareholders. So it's a way of the investors giving downside risk, I'd say it as. Um, the flip of it, though, on a when the business overperforms and the value goes up, they just get their percentage shareholding. They don't get their money back first, if you like. A participating preference works differently and works similarly to loan notes on a private equity deal. So that means in all scenarios, the money that investors put in comes back out first. Right. And then that doesn't impact the percentage shareholding the investor also gets. They also get the money back and then also their percentage shareholding as well. Um, so again, it can make a big difference. I think in terms of the multiples that often attach to those liquidation preferences, you generally see a one-times preference, both probably participating and non-participating would be the, the sort of standard position that investors would take. Non-participating is where they're more confident, I'd say. Participating when they're slightly less confident of, of the company they're investing in. Um, on sort of follow-on rounds or businesses that are seen as even more riskier, you're then into multiple preferences. You may see you know, one and a half, two times, maybe even up to three times in certain limited scenarios. 
um, in terms of those preferences. Obviously, um, that that eats away at the value for the founders. So again, it's something we need to be really resistant of uh, and also sets the tone for a follow-on round. If an investor's gone in at one and a half times preference in the previous round, it may influence yeah. the next round investor to want a similar kind of preference. Just something for them to be yeah, aware something of. something to be aware so. of. Even if the business is doing well, the fact they've set the benchmark on a previous round, it can impact that. So it's certainly something to be um, to be mindful of. The, the the sort of over one times preference, we're looking at some some data recently for this year, and that has dropped off. I think that is probably reflective more on the fact that venture capital are, are, are shying away from some more riskier deals right. than they were previously. They've probably been burnt a little bit in the past. So they're looking really only at deals where they're more confident of. And with that, that's probably a one-times preference realistically. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's really helpful in terms of you know looking at the market position now as well. Um, a few additional points to flag. Um, there are other documents that the BBC have prepared as well. And one of those is a subscription agreement. And in that subscription agreement, investors are asked to stand behind certain warranties. Um, sorry, founders are asked to stand behind certain warranties and give them to the company. Um, so the BVA subscription agreement seeks warranties from um, a variety of different topics. So confirmation of the share capital, confirmation of authority to enter into the documents, some general commercial warranties as well, um, such as accounts, compliance with laws, employees, assets, you know, no litigation, properties, et cetera. And then there are some additional warranties in relation to BVCA um, standard information in relation to VCTs and um, business plans as yes, well. Yes, it's the pack that underpins the VCT Absolutely. opinions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes we see on transactions that we've worked on, Mark, um, investors seeking confirmation of the contents of the due diligence reports that are prepared in connection with the investment as well. Um, I know that's more of an in-house position as opposed to a BVCA standard position. Yeah. But it is something that can sometimes crop up. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one. Again, I think it's um, something that's probably moving a little bit. I think private equity deals, managers would always um, warrant the, the due diligence reports. I think on venture deals, given that a lot of them, certainly in the healthcare sector, are often pre-revenue sometimes, uh, there isn't those DD reports prepared. So the focus is really much more on business plans um, and commercial warranties in terms of the focus. Um, so yeah, there's probably more resistance to giving uh, warranties over the DD reports than there was. And the BVCA position around not warranting the DD report supports that, certainly from a manager's perspective. And those warranties are usually backed by certain limitations um, on the founder's liability. What can founders expect that to look like? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting point. Again, conceptually, the founders need to think about a venture deal. They're getting money into the business to grow the business. They're not getting any kind of cash out themselves, but they are actually being asked to give warranties and give personal liabilities to stand behind those warranties. So it's something that is normal that that investors, you know, sort of managers need to accept, but is something that has to be managed as part of the process. Sure. Um, you're probably looking at a combination of salary or multiple of salary. Um, and probably one to one and a half times the salary would probably be the normal range that a founder manager would be asked to um, warrant or, or, or cap their liability at. In terms and that's their of, like hurt value. Yeah, that's the, that, yeah, absolutely. That's their hurt value. You probably found that it's probably more like two times the salary previously. Right. So it probably has come down. That's Certainly good. as managers should be starting at one time. So that's what we'd recommend. Um, they may get moved to one and a half times as part of negotiations, but that's the sort of range you'd be looking at. The other point to bear in mind with that is obviously there is potentially salary discussions as part of the round. Um, so you know, if they're willing to give a slightly higher multiple there, it may help in negotiations around what quantum of salary they get going forward as well. So those two things sort of interplay with each other as well. So. Okay, that's really helpful. And what about restrictive covenants? I know that in the shareholders agreement, the BVCA 
um, document has some standard restrictive covenants that founders should be looking to stand behind? Yeah, no, absolutely. So an important part of an investor's viewpoint, obviously, is protecting the money they're putting in. You know, the founder's passion is often built within the business and what have you. What they don't want is the founder leaving very quickly after an investment round and going and competing with them. Um, so the restrictive covenants, again, are, are a lock-in really, similar to the vesting yeah. that we talked about in a, different, in a different way, is keeping those founders, managers involved in the business. You're probably realistically looking at a 12 to 24 month rolling period after someone ceases to be employed. Um, that's probably employed on a, as an employee and also an executive director. Once they sort of step down from that role, that's the sort of runoff period you've got um, in there. The point that sits with that to be mindful of is sometimes those covenants can be also tied to shareholding. So if they're good levers, they retain their shares. In certain scenarios, depending on the drafting, they could be stuck with not being able to compete up until an exit the time they leave, which could be three, four years down the line. So again, that's where managers really need to take advice on and make sure that's um, that's unlocked really as part of the And that sits hand in hand with the vesting provisions <clears throat> that you mentioned earlier, Mark. So vesting for good levers where they have been allowed to retain some of their shareholding. They just need to watch out that if those restrictive covenants are also tied into, you know, that 12 to 24 month period yeah. only starting when they cease to be a shareholder as well, they could actually be, you know, on the hook for those covenants for a longer period of time. Yeah, no, massively. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's an important point. I think the BBCA position is that it isn't tied to shareholding. It is just tied to them ceasing to be involved in the business. And actually, if they haven't been involved for two years, well, it seems fair enough that they can can go and do something else at that point in time. So, And the time period is negotiable, isn't it? So the BBCA documents don't have a specific yeah. time period in there. 12 to 24 months is something that we often see as like the market range. Yeah, no, massively. And, and, and it's fair to say that all of the the sort of boundaries and examples we've given today probably flex over time as the market moves. That's the sort of current position, but it can move on a year-by-year -year basis um, depending on demand and, and where the market's looking like. Perfect. In, in, in terms of the, the sort of wider market, and I suppose the, the last point we wanted to probably touch on was really just thinking around, okay, we touched on at the start that there's 15 billion pound of investment. I think 40% of that investment comes from US investors into the UK market. So something we're seeing more and more, and certainly from companies, founders' viewpoints, is the mindset of actually, what is a US private equity investor looking like? Sure. How, how does that different, di you know, differ from the UK um, investor? Is there anything you want to flag? I know it's a new topic in itself, but in terms yeah. of like headline points, just, just yeah, to flag Yeah, there are a couple of things that might be worth touching on um, if you have a US investor. So I guess the first thing to bear in mind is the entity that's usually used from a US perspective is a limited partnership. So here in the UK, the traditional fund vehicle is a limited liability company. In the US, that's used for different purposes and less likely to be, you know, the traditional US fund vehicle that would usually be like a limited partnership. Um, so that's the first point to note in terms of the entity that um, US investors tend to invest in VCT uh, scenarios. The second one you mentioned um, earlier, Mark, is proceeds waterfall. And you mentioned what we would, you know, usually describe as like a European style proceeds waterfall. There is on the flip of that, an American style proceeds waterfall. Um, and that's where only the capital contributions that we use to fund portfolio investment companies that have been disposed of and fund expenses are returned to the limited partners prior to um, the division of those proceeds between the limited partner and the general partner in what can be sometimes like an 80-20 ratio. Um, so that style of waterfall, in contrary to the one that, you know, in the BVCA precedent documents in the UK, 
represents a higher risk of overdistribution of carried interest to the sponsor and hence a higher clawback risk. So, I mean, it's a topic in itself. Like you said, there's quite a lot of things that um, yeah. do vary, you know, across the continent. Um, but that's just a couple of headline points to be aware of. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's certainly something we're seeing, isn't it, around US investors coming in, UK management teams wanted to speak to them. Absolutely. They need to be prepared for the fact that they may be presented with a set of US venture terms. So just having some awareness of what that looks like um, is also important. In the yeah, and we've had good so. experience of yeah. that as well. So it's definitely something that we're familiar with. Yeah. Okay. Great. Fantastic. Well, that's that's it from us today. Hopefully that was useful. I think, as I said, the, the focus really was around sort of founders having some kind of additional knowledge in terms of how the BBCA precedents work and, and really work in their favour, hopefully, as part of the negotiations. Um, so hopefully that was useful and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you.